Scripture loves to do comparisons and contrasts. It does it sometimes in statements like, like light and darkness, or truth or falsehood, the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. But it also sometimes does it in situations. It loves to show a contrast. A, a great example in the Gospels, the Gospel of John reveals, is the very same moment Jesus is being challenged by, his, by the religious leaders up, leading up to his trial and his crucifixion, the text keeps going back to Peter. And while Jesus is being faithful to God the Father, Peter continually denies Jesus three times. And the text doesn't just show the Jesus part and then show the Peter part. It shows a little bit of Jesus' faithfulness, and then it jumps to show Peter unfaithful. Then it goes back to Jesus, faithful. Then it goes back to Peter, another denial. It wants you to see the contrast. So that the very same moment you're seeing how in the midst of this situation, the faithfulness of God is being contrasted against unfaithfulness. And this text does that beautifully. I know it's long. It's 25-ish verses. There's a lot of content. But if you're careful in watching it, it keeps jumping back between the sons of Eli and the son of Hannah. And it shows you what God is intending to do in the bigger picture of even the biblical story. So let's pray, and then we'll take a peek at our text for this morning. Father, help us to hear the truth in your word. Help it to form us and to shape us. And help us to see the contrast that you present between faithful and unfaithful responses to God and to his church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text starts without leaving much room for what God or the author thinks of these individuals. How would you like that? I remember my kids used to, we'd get a report card and you'd open it up and there'd be grades, but they'd want it, the teacher would write comments down. And so like, wait, what'd the teacher say? What we'd read, imagine this being the first one. Your child is worthless. They do not know whatever, right? Can you imagine that being in the report card? Huh? Like, that's how the text starts. It doesn't want to waste any time. Well, what do you think? Are they doing a good job? The sons of Eli were worthless men. Well, imagine that being in the record, read publicly in how many churches over the last thousands of years. Just imagine that. They did not know the Lord, which means they did not pay him any regard. It wasn't about knowledge. It wasn't about, it's not a knowing as if like cognitively, I've never heard his name before. It's not about knowing in the idea of, of mind. It's, it's about knowing him and aligning your life to him. Like that's where it goes. You could, you could, the text is wanting you to see already what it wants. They treated God like a superficial formality. So just imagine these men of God from a line of God's line, established by God. That's where he goes Later in the text that was read for us, I formed your house. Your family line was set apart to serve me, and this is what you do? So they're in their priestly garb in the temple of God, supposedly serving God's people as to the Lord, but they're worthless. And the proof of that is in the text itself. They served themselves. 
greed, power, self-gain. The example might be foreign to us because not many of us have walked to the temple in Jerusalem and offered sacrifices like this is depicting. It's describing the sacrificial process. And it says in verse 14 that before the fat had been burned off, the evil sons of Eli would thrust into the pan a fork and they'd take all that they would want. And they weren't supposed to do that. In fact, it even gives an example, right? Look at, look at verse 15. They would say, give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And then look at verse 16. And if the man said to him, why would he say that? Because Leviticus 7 specifically commanded that they were, that was not what was supposed to happen. So imagine the devout disciple of God bringing a sacrifice, standing there watching their offering, and seeing the priest breaking the biblical commandment. So that even these disciples, the fact that it says, if a man, meaning it was probably said all the time. Sir, Leviticus 7, I mean, I, they might even be, am I supposed to tell the priest this? Leviticus 7 commanded you to let the fat be burned off. That belonged to the Lord. And look at what verse 16 says. If a man would say, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, literally quoting Leviticus 7, the priest would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. What kind of language is that? What kind of priests are these? So if, that, if you wanted evidence that God wasn't joking when he said these are worthless men who did not know the Lord, well, there it's given to us. So the contrast is meant to show us what not to do. These verses are saying to us, let us not be people who have little or no regard for God. Now, this, this may maybe specifically apply to your ministry leaders, pastors and elders of a local church. Fair enough. But I think it extends equally just to all God's people. Do we make decisions with God in mind? Like, do we, do we know the Lord? Again, not just a cognitive, oh, yeah, yeah, I've read that story before. Like, do we know the Lord in the sense of, like, we're aligning our lives to his commandments and his purposes and his will? Or is it just superficial formality? Is that really all it is? Like, we just, we just know cultural Christianity. We just know that. We were, we were raised in this. You go to church, mm-hmm, you're there, an hour to God. Then you get on with life. Do we make decisions with God in mind? Do we align our lives to his prescribed laws and guidelines? Do we serve him in a selfless manner? Does God set our agendas? Does he direct our steps? Or is he just the wallpaper that is part of our cultural Christian experience? Just be aware of this text. Sadly, this was happening in God's own house. Now the text switches in verse 18, and it doesn't say it in the ESV, but, but the Hebrew clearly is saying it's implied. In fact, other English translations in verse 18 will say, but Samuel, which, which is right. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, and it even describes him as clothed, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. 
It's describing his garment. It's wanting to show here's just a kid who is literally interning, serving under these worthless priests, but you just don't see worthlessness in him. It even wants to depict him. He's wearing the clothes of a priest. That is somebody who will faithfully serve God. It might, it, it's a child rebuking by his very pure actions the behavior of the full-time priests. The phrase was ministering describes an ongoing activity. Just picture a young boy carrying buckets, washing, scrubbing, prepping things, just with joy in his heart serving the king. The clothing that is mentioned is the garment for priests. And verse 19 is a fascinating insight. Like, why does God give us this? And his mother, verse 19 says, used to make for him this linen ephod, a little robe, and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. What an interesting detail that God threw in in verse 19. So so picture this, once a year, which was proper practice, if you lived close enough to Jerusalem, you would make the trip to offer an annual sacrifice. And you're seeing Elkanah and his family do this every year. That's exactly how all of a sudden Hannah, before Samuel was born, when the festivities were going one evening, left and went and prayed in the temple, and Eli saw her and thought she was drunk when she was praying and moaning and lamenting before the Lord about her infertility. That's where the book started. Every year they would come and gather, and every year this mom, who had literally given her son to God in the temple, would make for him, just a little bit longer every year, a robe, priestly garment. Like she was so affirming what she had given for him to do that she would literally dress him in a priestly robe befitting his role in the temple. And every year, can you just imagine this mom who would be excited making this with hands that would love to hold him and squeeze him and kiss him, would love to be making the meals for him, but she's given him to the Lord. So she makes this garment that she can see him again at the annual time each year and put the robe on him. Why does the text give us that insight? This portrait of a mother of faith clothing her son in robes for service year after year. I think it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what a faithful mom or dad or even grandparent would look like. Here's the contrast. In contrast to the sons of Eli or even Eli himself is this faithful son and this God-centered mom. Moms. In every act of service, in every little hug or kiss, every note of encouragement, every cleanup on the dinner table or lunch or breakfast, every little gift, every little gentle touch, repairing every little owie, helping with every little homework assignment, the hundreds of things you do every day, you are dressing your children to serve the Lord. Parenting can be just a repetitive and at times seemingly menial task, and yet it is the cumulative effect of a million acts of service that the Lord uses to shape and form your children. In those ways of service, you dress your children to serve others and to serve the Lord, and you will not see the fruit of it in the moment that you are serving the Lord. 
I think this text is giving a glimpse of a faithful mom to encourage God's people to be faithful moms and dads, to be faithful, faithful grandmas and grandpas. And it's, it's laborious work at times. And the child will not immediately turn around and say, Mother, thank you for serving the Lord as you served me. You're not going to hear that. But faithfulness is what exactly this mother did. Not seeing her son during the year, but once a year going up and dressing him gives a beautiful portrait of a people who adorn their children with their acts of service as to the Lord. Now please hear this. Not all of us will have the honor of having a child chosen by God for his service. It's not it. Not all of us will have kids who, just because we tried to present them with the gospel and raise them with a Christian faith and love them in a way of serving the Lord, that they will initially respond. It's not the way it works. The Lord must ultimately do the raising. That may be the hardest thing for us to grasp. The Lord must work in our children. If anything, on Pentecost Sunday, we're aware of that fact. It is the work of the Spirit in us and the Heavenly Father, not just the earthly moms and dads that can form our kids. Yet we must be faithful before the Lord, even just in prayer, to be adorning our children with robes for serving the Lord. So the contrast is not even just between the sons of Eli and the son of Hannah. It's even between Eli and Hannah themselves. And that's what we see in verses 22 to 26. The text now goes to the other parent, Eli. It looks as if some years have passed between verses 21 and 22. Many years have passed. Eli is now very old, and his wicked sons have corrupted the temple. By first mentioning Eli rebuking his sons in his own age, the text may be revealing that he was lax in his, lax in his parenting, in his care for God's temple. Why is he addressing this now as an old man with grown sons? Did he not see this earlier on? Did he not rebuke them, confront them? The text is hard to read. Eli was very old, verse 22, and he kept hearing that all his son, all that his sons were doing to all Israel. That, that's pretty loaded. Like, this isn't just a one-off event. His sons were doing a ton of different things to a ton of different people. In fact, they were being grotesque in their behavior even toward the women. They come to the place of God expecting to commune with him, to offer their sacrifices. It's a religious place. And they're being taken advantage of. These people should be thrown in jail, not serving in the temple. Did you just know about this now? He says in verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. How many, Eli? How many times were you told? How many times did you get a glimpse of that? This is the first time you're addressing it? No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And skip down to the end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. That's strong language. 
In fact, you, you don't even get a defense. You, you don't even hear them speak. It's only the narrator telling. They literally ignored him. Maybe they walked out of the room. Maybe he tried to confront them and they didn't even listen. They didn't even spend time there. There's never even a dialogue. Well, Dad, let me give my side of the story. They don't even care. Remember verse 12? They're worthless. Why was Eli only hearing about his son's behavior and not overseeing it? This text is telling us something sharp. Let us not be people who fail to shepherd our children, especially in the things of God. If Hannah depicts this, this parent who is literally offering her child to God, literally forming him, dressing him with garments for the Lord's service, the contrast with the parenting of Eli is quite the opposite. Disengaged. They are responsible for their sins, but Eli was their father. That's harsh language at the end of verse 25. The narrator says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's pretty harsh. In fact, it might cause a bit of a conundrum. The Lord willed that. In one sense, that's language of judgment. But please hear that Scripture has no problem holding together God's sovereignty over all things with human accountability for their own actions. God has no problem putting those two things together. God is completely sovereign and nothing happens outside His will, and yet humans are responsible for their actions. And here you see this text where that is being brought together. This is the judgment language of God. We, we could spend time even reflecting on the difference, not that we get a good glimpse from the life of Hannah, but at least with Eli about what it means to parent our children or even to be a grandparent. It is a challenge. And you kind of see two extremes between the the, the, the parents that want to be their kids' best friends, growing trend in our culture today. Just that child-centered reality where it's about friendship, not as much about parenting, versus that authoritarian model, harsh, strong, detached. There's got to be something that balances those two. The biblical perspective of parenting, if we could try to put a finger on it, envisions a relationship that is grounded in love, that's buoyed by mutual respect, and a commitment to pursue a healthy relationship that extends beyond the home and into adulthood. That's hard to do. I can't imagine that any parent who's raised their kids for any period of time doesn't have questions about their own decisions they've made over the years. Rooted in what they experienced when they were little boys or little girls with their moms and dads. What does it look like to raise our kids well? Some of you have already completed that task. I'm still in the middle of it. But at least we can see that biblical contrast between Hannah and Eli. And see a disengaged father versus a committed mother. And ask the Lord to let us be people to shepherd our children. Especially in the things of God to shepherd our children. The text moves now in verses 27 to 34, and it really moves to judgment. And there's a fascinating statement that maybe you 
missed when Melissa was reading it. Somebody approaches Eli and gives this long, extended, several-verse statement of judgment, and the guy's never named. Look at verse 27. Did you notice this? Out of the blue, some guy walks into the temple. Who is he? No idea. The text describes him as merely a man of God. Did you see that? And there came a man of God to Eli. Where'd he come from? Who is he? You can imagine interpreters of the past. Was he an angel? Like, was he not known in this community? Like, we're talking to people coming to the temple all the time, but did anybody know? Had anybody seen him before in Jerusalem? So this man of God, the text says, came to Eli and said, thus saith the Lord. And then he began to speak. The only thing we can glimpse of that, we we have no idea who he is, but we have an idea of the what. Every time you see that statement used by a human agent, that is the work of a prophet. In the Old Testament, that's the image of a prophet. So a prophet walked in unnamed. They didn't even need to be named, but they didn't need to have their own authority. They were speaking on behalf of God. And their language is sharp. It is a judgment of God against the sons of Eli, and it is devastating. The judgment clearly points to a disregard for God and his religious requirements. Look, I'm reading the beginning of verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling? That's harsh language. But don't let that go right to the ears of Eli that we don't hear God's concern for his church. How should this cause us to think about how we think and act toward the church of Christ? Do we take it seriously? If you're a member of a church and you have a governing authority as part of this body, do you take it seriously? Or is it just superficial formality? When you're invited and encouraged to even in ways I'm thinking, even as I announced earlier this morning about the VBS and the ministry to our kids, If you're able and willing to serve as part of your duty to the king. Do you hear that? At the end of 29, this man of God offers a judgment that is a strong rebuke of Eli, not merely as a father, but primarily as a priest. The prophet says, why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? This should cause us to protect and guard the church of Christ. As members of this body, that is your role. And he even explains why it is right, even if it's hard, it's right for us as God's people to at times, and it is difficult to do, but to at times practice church discipline. A church that doesn't practice church discipline is like Eli, the father, who's not engaging with his own sons. And it is not just an issue about a father loving their sons. It's not just about the human relationship. It's ultimately about the church of God. Like cancer, sin distorts our thinking so much that we want to soften God for our own gain. 
Whereas the Christians should acknowledge God as Hannah did. Do you remember how she described God in the verse 2 of this same chapter in her prayer? There is none holy like the Lord. This text reminds us that God is not only our Savior, the Savior, He is also our judge, the judge. And we, 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 like, a, we like a softer God. We like a God who works with the brokenhearted, not the one who deals with the hard-hearted, but He is holy. And we cannot minimize Him to suit our preferred style of life. Finally, notice how the text ends. And I've said before, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Just as the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. It's a quote by a guy named Augustine. To show that at the end of this judgment, notice what this man of God says in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. What kind of a priest is that? One that knows the Lord. Remember remember verse 12? They didn't know the Lord. This priest is so aligned with the Lord in heart and mind. And I will build him a sure house. Remember that text in Ephesians 2 that Greg read for us? Built on the prophets and the apostles. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Our text ends with a significant promise from God himself. In the biblical story, God is always the provider for his people. God is never just basing it on our merits, our behavior, or the behavior of any other man or woman. It is always God who provides. God doesn't base our success or salvation on any merits besides his goodness and grace. And even in this judgment of the family of Eli, he points to promise. Although the Lord will raise up interim priests for his people, Jesus Christ is clearly the faithful high priest being mentioned here. In fact, if you want a clue about it, if, if the beginning of verse 35 talks about faithful priests, notice how verse 35 ends with this language of my anointed. That's that's king language. And throughout the story of the Bible, Israel was seeking the true priest and the true king. Ultimately, both of them are fulfilled by Jesus. One of the major messages of the book of Hebrews is how Jesus is this high priest. Listen to these words from Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that we, the author of Hebrews says, should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Notice notice how different that is than the sons of Eli. But notice the language of exaltation. That's royal language. He has no need, Hebrews says, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So notice how in this contrast between Hannah and Eli, or 
the son of Hannah and the sons of Eli. We see the way that God wants us to live faithfully and not in an unfaithful way. But notice how the text never just makes it a moralism. Never just makes it about our obedience or our faithfulness. Notice how the text always ends with Jesus, who served us, who forgives us our sins, and in whose name we live even now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for the way it shows us faithfulness and unfaithfulness, and ultimately how it points us to Christ. How it says that you would raise up a faithful high priest. Even on this Pentecost Sunday, we acknowledge that it is your priest that we gather in his name who has served us perfectly. And Father, our only response can be like the response we pray of Hannah and Samuel, that we are actively ministering before a faithful priest. Or as parents trying to raise our kids well with this truth. We, we see all of these contrasts, Father, and we want to be your children. Help us to be faithful as children of God, as parents of our own children, as grandparents, as church family, ministering in your church. Help us to take sin seriously. Help us not just to treat you and your will as superficial formality. Help us to be Christians in word and deed, not just culturally. And Father, where those things are present in us or in this local church, would you, like you did with this prophet, make those known to keep your church holy, set apart as you are, and to form us to be people who truly serve you. So help us as parents to be like Hannah, and help us as children of God to be like Samuel. And thank you so much for Jesus who even in the Old Testament makes sense of what your ultimate purposes are for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.